Welcome to the Writers Institute podcast. I'm your host, Paul Grandall, the director of the New York State Writers Institute at the University of Albany. Our guest today is a longtime friend and colleague and also has an incredible, important connection to the Writers Institute because he is the founder and the director of the New York State Summer Writers Institute, which is held each July at Skidmore College in Saratoga Springs. My guest today is Robert Boyers. He's got a tremendous new book that is getting a lot of attention. The book is titled The Tyranny of Virtue, Identity, the Academy, and the Hunt for Political Heresies just published by Scribner, a really important uh, interview, Q&A in the New Yorker. Um, and welcome, Bob. Thank you so much. Delighted to be here. So this is this is a, a great time for the book, and we're going to get into it. You, you really, um, timing is, is important. I mean, this is the conversation, the culture wars and what's going on in universities right now. The timing is really important. I think this book is really going to take off. But we always like to start our conversations with writers, kind of the earliest, the earliest uh, stirrings of, of the public intellectual that you've become. So you grew up in Brooklyn. I know your grandfather was a rabbi. Uh, your, your father had a store uh, in your neighborhood. But when did you come to become a reader and a writer? And was it was it early? Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I was I was a good student, and uh, you know, I went to uh, Stuyvesant High School uh, in New York City, um, and uh, and I was always very interested in politics, um, though my parents were not educated people. Uh, worked at a store. Um, my father was was a man of the liberal left, um, and we talked politics in the house. And when I went to Queens College of the City University of New York, um, I immediately founded uh, the Liberal Club of Queens College. And I had all sorts of interesting people with me uh, in that. And I I ran it for four years uh, there at the college. And uh, and when I started um, my own magazine, Salma Gundy, in 1965, it was right from the start uh, a magazine of the humanities and politics. And... uh, and uh, so I've, I've been invested in politics all my life, really. Um, and though most of my writing um, uh, has had some connection to literature, um, two of my my books are on the subject of politics and the novel, mm. um, which is a subject I've always been interested in. I've, I've again, I've been writing about that for fifty years. So. Uh were you the first in your family to go to college or get yes, a college I was. degree? Yes, yeah. and, and were you in a house of books, or, or it wasn't a house where there were a lot of books around? And we had no books uh, in my house. Um, uh, after a while, um, when I was you know, perhaps eight or nine years old, I would sometimes see a... Uh, I guess I would call it a trashy paperback uh, on the nightstand uh, next to my parents' uh, bed. Um, But we didn't have a bookcase. Uh, We didn't have any books. Uh, We didn't have any magazines. Um, Occasionally, um, we would see an issue of Life magazine or something like that. Uh, My father brought home from... uh, uh, into the house each evening, uh, the New York Post, uh, which was a rather a leftish uh, right. newspaper in those days, uh, and a very good one mm-hmm. actually. And um, and every night um, before dinner, he w- he would come home for about forty five minutes. He would always assign me one article um, or op-ed piece uh, in the New York Post, 
and uh, and we would talk about it at wow. the dinner table. That was our little talk before he was my your father. First professor, huh? He was my he first. Was, he was. So he, he was. had more street smarts. He wasn't really a, a book person. Not a book person. He never read books. Yeah. And then he went to high school. Yeah. Um, he went to boys' high school in Brooklyn, and uh, but he really was um, deeply interested in politics. And and again, some of the um, stuff that he had me reading in the New York Post in those days was actually quite demanding. Uh, for example, there was a great uh, columnist several times a week in those days in the Post named Murray Kempton, oh, who of is, course. as you know, you know, yeah. a legendary yes. journalist, yes. not a, 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 a journalist particularly easy to read, right. um, but he was a wonderful writer. And I think in many ways, uh, reading Murray Kempton in those days sort of inspired me to think about how I might come to write about politics myself. So how did you find this path? Did you go, were you someone, a kid that went to the local library? Where, where did you start absorbing, you know, great writers and literature? Just and in school, honestly. I, you know, I, I, I uh, again, I, I was a really diligent student. And so, you know, I went above and beyond. Certainly by the time I was in junior high school, um, I had a teacher, I've written about her uh, in a, a memoir that I wrote some years ago, uh, but I had a, a really inspiring uh, teacher in junior high school named Ethlyn Rutledge. She was a middle-aged uh, black woman who saw something in me and encouraged me and, uh, and was extraordinarily helpful in sending me on my way. And then, of course, when I went to, to Stuyvesant and then went to college, you know, I I read everything and and, um, and shut down the library every night yeah. at uh, uh, at Queens College um, and uh, you know and and I think like a lot of young people who sort of discover their gifts uh, in college, uh, I, I I knew what I wanted to do from that point on. Stuyvesant High School has an incredible reputation. Students have gone on to great things. Were you? at one point tracking to another profession isn't that also a lot of scientific field yeah, and absolutely uh, and and i was never particularly uh, good at math and science though i went to a math and science high school mm. and uh, so of course i you know i did well enough uh, in those subjects uh, but I won the award in English uh, at Stuyvesant High School and got my award at, at, at graduation and so on. And uh, when I went to college, I wasn't sure. I thought maybe I'd go to law school and go into politics. I had an uncle, one of my father's brothers, who became an important New York City politician and became chief justice of the New York State Supreme Court. Wow. Um, and, and so I, you know, I had that in, in my, my close family, yeah. and I thought about going that way. But once I moved through college and, and found myself uh, totally absorbed in uh, the literature I was reading, I knew I wanted to be a literary person. And I love the uh, the stories of how you started Salma Gundy. You, you started with money you saved up singing. Tell me about that. Well, yeah, that was a that was a very strange thing. I, I was a boy singer, and uh, uh, I, I I sang at a very large uh, temple in in Brooklyn, um, very large temple, and I became a soloist there, and. Um, and I, I was paid for it. I didn't know I was paid for it. My parents, who were working class, um, never mentioned anything about the money I was earning. It wasn't an uh, enormous sum of money, but it was money. And because I did it for nine years, um, 
when when I, my voice changed and I could no longer sing in the choir, and I it was just before I went to college and so on, I, I never thought about any of that. And then when I graduated from college, just before I turned 21, uh, my parents uh, gave me about $25,000, which was a fortune. Yeah, uh, wow. You know, this is in 1963. That's a lot of singing gigs. That's Were a lot of singing. Were you singing at bar mitzvahs and weddings? Oh, or yeah, I was traveling around all the time, all over Brooklyn. What kinds of music? Uh, well, always religious music. Right. Uh, always religious music. Um, and some of the time, in fact, though my family was by no means uh, orthodox, um, I sang at orthodox weddings and bar mitzvahs uh, because... You know, they they like my voice and they like my style of mm-hmm. singing, and so very often my father or my uncle or my grandmother, a grandfather would accompany me to uh, some place in Brooklyn on the subway or the bus. We would go, and I would sing at ceremonies. I would sing sometimes in people's houses mm. um, when they'd have a, an, an event at their house, and then again, money definitely changed hands at those occasions but no one ever mentioned it to me it was just something i was told you're doing this that's great uh you're signed up you're, you're going on sunday to this you're going on friday night to that and i did it you i'm know. glad they saved you probably would have spent it on comic books or something probably if it, was, if it, was, it would have burned a hole in your pocket absolutely as a kid. <laughs> absolutely no i never I, it never occurred to me and of course yeah. i was completely amazed when uh, when the money came my way. Uh, but uh, not as amazed as my parents were when they learned shortly afterwards that I was going to spend all of that money um, by beginning a little magazine. Yeah, how, how do you even start that? Now, you weren't at, were you at Skidmore? You weren't there yet? No, I, I, how do you start I started it. I, w- I was a graduate student at NYU, and I had a few you know literary friends in New York City. And um, we um, looked around, got some advice from people we knew, and uh, we found a guy who uh, had a small publishing house. It was called October House, and they had their own little printing operation there. Mm -hmm. And we made an appointment with the owner, a man named David Way, long gone. Uh, This is in 1964. And um, and, uh, we interested him in, in what we wanted to do, and uh, he became the printer uh, and uh, officially the publisher of our little magazine. And when an issue would come out, we would rent a van and we would drive all over the place selling the magazine on campuses. Wow. So we'd go for you know two days to Cambridge. Uh, we'd go to New Haven, to Yale. Um, we'd go all over the City University of New York. And we had a little f- uh, two little folding tables. We'd set them up on campus. We'd sit there. We'd have some sample issues of the magazine, lots of flyers. And uh, we did that for three years wow. uh, to get the magazine off the ground and build a subscription base. So, you know, it's a really homemade operation. <laughs> so know. did it start more of a, a political kind of... Or, or was it strictly literary from no, the beginning? No, it was politics or? and literature right mm-hmm. from the start. Yeah. Right from the start. Uh, one of the first issues of the magazine has an article. Yeah, it's interesting to think about it. called The Positive Function of Hate White. And it was basically an article that was debating uh, the difference between Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. Um, And trying to make the case that both, both strands in the civil rights movement were necessary. Uh, at 
at the time. And we, you know, we ran numbers of pieces on the Vietnam War and, uh, and so on, you know, from a more or less consistently, I would say, left liberal uh, perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we also ran original stories, poems, interviews, and we did special issues, um, always many special issues on topics, you know. Um, the, um, uh, we did a special issue on the legacy of the German refugee intellectuals, which was published in many different book editions. And then we've done many issues on race and and uh, the clash of civilizations right. and that sort of thing. So we've always been involved in politics very much. How did you pick the name? Uh, it's funny. We picked the name because um, there was a, uh, a store um, in our area that was called the Salma Gundy Shop. And uh, it had a little card up the front, and we learned, therefore, all about Salma Gundy as a sort of a, uh, it was, well, originally a kind of a French stew with a Provencal background. It's a, it's a stew in which you throw everything you got, or anything you can find. You, mm-hmm. you can throw it into the stew and see what happens. And that was very appealing to us. And then uh, when I went to graduate school down at Washington Square in NYU, I discovered the Salma Gundy Club. Um, which really didn't have any connection to us, but there was another use of, of Salma Gundy. Right. Yeah. I, th- I think you're good at titles. Let's get to the book, The Tyranny of Virtue. I love that title. Good. A lot of authors kind of wait till the end or can't find a title. I know their publishers of them. How did you come up with that title? Uh, well, you know, the, the term virtue signaling... Yeah, we're going to get into that. There's so yeah. many terms oh. uh, in, afloat and in this book today. Yeah, and, and that was very much in my right. mind um, at, at the moment. And I began witnessing um, on my own campus at Skidmore College, but I, where I've been a professor for 51 years, um, and at many other campuses that I've visited over these recent years as a visiting writer or lecturer or professor or whatever. And uh, I've just seen what seemed to me a kind of tyranny taking shape. Um, all sorts of, of uh, protocols and codes and uh, regulations and prohibitions and so on, the likes of which created, at least in my mind, uh, the sense of a surveillance society. And, um, and when I thought about that in connection with virtue signaling, that expression, tyranny of virtue, just came to mind. I can tell you that uh, there were publicity people at my publisher um, who were not happy with that uh, title. Uh, They felt it was too obscure that many people wouldn't understand it, and my editor, um, who's the top editor there, had a fight for it, uh, but he he got it. And and I think now everybody involved at the publishing house thinks it was a good thing. Yeah. Uh, but but it wasn't clearly going to be the title of the book when mm. I presented it. Mm. <laughs> so so um, we're also on a university campus now. I work on a university campus. I, I don't have. I just turned sixty. You know, I was on this campus in the early '80s, so I've got a little bit of perspective. Mm. And and uh, but I do feel currently I'm I'm very careful. In a way, I feel like we're walking on eggshells mm-hmm. um, because I have seen you know, Tempest brew out of, which I didn't consider were were major. You've been through a lot of cycles, you know, the civil rights movement, Vietnam War, gay rights movement, women's rights movement, and you've taught and read the classic texts. 
what is it about now that's different? You know, your early issues of Salma Gundy were somewhat addressing like we are now, but it was a different climate. You know, you didn't get shot down for... for no. so, so what's different now? Well, I think, um, again, it's, it's, it's not um, always easy, you know, to, to identify exactly what caused these changes to occur. Um, but, but we've been watching them. Um, I mean, you know that um, as long ago as the late 1980s, there was a lot of attention paid um, to, well, if you think about the title of the most successful book of that moment, The Closing of the American Mind by Alan Bloom. And so the alarm bells were going off back in the 1980s, and in general, they were set off by right-wing authors, uh, like like Alan Bloom himself. And, And at the time, um, people like myself on the left, right, were extremely reluctant to concede that many of the things that Alan Bloom and people like that were citing were as important and significant as he suggested. And many of the things that uh, that Alan Bloom uh, cited in his book seemed to me exaggerated. Um, certainly they were exaggerated um, based on my own intimate experience of the way things were evolving at Skidmore College. I, I didn't, in those days, uh, I was involved in, in all sorts of strife uh, on the campus, and I never felt that I had to watch what I was saying right. or that anyone else was, was operating in that way. It, it, it didn't seem at all um, a problem to speak your mind. And, uh, and gradually, I began to feel that that had changed. Um, people were watching uh, what kinds of words they used, even words that had no particular um, sort of charge to them suddenly became potentially at least dangerous. Uh, people were being called out for saying things they shouldn't have said. Uh, and they could be things that a year or two years before, nobody would call them, have called them out for. Right. And suddenly, um, someone had decided somewhere that this was no longer uh, an allowable term. Uh, and suddenly, people were being told that um, students were encouraged by professors um, to complain uh, about books that were being taught in the classes um, and questions that were being raised uh, in the classes. And uh, at a certain point, you began to feel that the climate had really changed in a decisive way and that a great many uh, academics who regard themselves as people on the liberal left had joined the party of suspicion and surveillance. Uh, this was an extraordinary uh, discovery, I think, for many of us. Um, you know, if you think back to uh, people of my generation, um, my generation meaning people who are in the mid and late 70s, mm-hmm. um, who lived as adults through the 1960s, this was a, a period of liberation on every front. Books that had been banned were suddenly open. Right? We, we could talk about, we could read, we could write articles about uh, Lady Chatterley's lover, Tropic of Cancer, right? And everyone would have laughed at you if you were uh, a liberal academic and you suggested that maybe it wouldn't be a good idea to teach Lolita 
um, in your class because it might offend someone's sensibilities. You right. would have laughed. You would have, so, all right, so if their sensibilities are offended, so you'll talk about it in the classroom. You'll, you'll get to the bottom of that. And uh, you, won't, you won't tell someone not to be offended. You'll just say, well, let's, let's consider that you know, we're all sometimes uh, made to feel uncomfortable by all sorts of things c- right. that we confront in a classroom, in a d- debate. Um, but now um, that sort of response is, is, um, is a minority response. Yeah. I, I find it is hypersensitive and, and very overheated in a way, almost like hothouse tomatoes. But let's use a couple terms because these are so, you know, in the currency now. And you give examples in the book, so I want to talk about a few specifics. Let's start with trigger warnings and microaggressions. Do you want to define those and, and sure. from your own experience, you, you've, you've come across these and, mm-hmm. and, and how they can roil the waters? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, um, uh, trigger warnings, um, you know, I, I, I like to try to be sort of sensible about uh, about these kinds of things. So when when the term trigger warnings was first uh, sounded in, in in my experience, at least I thought, well, it's trigger warnings. Yeah, well, trigger warnings um, for adults. Um, we're supposed to think of our um, college students as young adults. Why would they need trigger warnings? Um, you know, they can be surprised by things. Uh, they can be uncomfortable and, and work through that the way the rest of us did. After a while, I began to think, well, you know, uh, certain kinds of trigger warnings might not be such a bad idea, uh, depending on how they're used. So I don't mind saying, um, for example, by way of a trigger warning in a class, when we're about to discuss a short story by Richard Wright, which uses the N-word, right? Mm-hmm. I don't mind saying, now, when this story that we're reading and, and contains the N-word, and um, I think in our class, um, if there are people in the room, quite clearly, uh, white or black, who feel particularly uncomfortable um, saying out the N-word, I think we'll just call it the N-word. Mm-hmm. I think we won't, we won't read it out. Um, I don't think that's the only legitimate way to handle that when we're reading out a text and other people feel differently about it. But I'm giving you a trigger warning. I'm saying it's there, and we're all alert to it in that way. Um, But of course, if trigger warnings are used in a very different way, to say to students in a class, look, we're about to study the novel called Lolita, and some of you are going to feel very uncomfortable reading that book. So even though it's on the uh, syllabus for our course, if you're uncomfortable, you don't have to read that book. And you don't have to attend the classes in which we discuss that book. I'm describing something that actually occurs in, in my own institution. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I disapprove of that completely. Uh, student doesn't want to read the book that's on the syllabus. The student should drop the course. Um, nor do I think I can be expected or anyone else can be expected. So let's go back to that. What kind of reaction, when you tell that to the administration, do they have? Because I feel like they're running scared. They are I mean, running they're, scared. They're, 
they're worried, one, about enrollment and the financial footing of the institution, all these things, yeah. they're, they're, they're so risk-averse. So when you say that to, I don't know, the vice president or the provost, what's the reaction? Well, so far, the, we don't have, in my institution, we don't have a policy regarding trigger warnings so that nobody can be in violation of, of such a policy, right? but at, this, at least at this point. Right. Um, there are complaints routinely um, uh, about books that are assigned in courses and things, uh, directions that uh, t- uh, teachers ask their uh, students to navigate, and that's, uh, that's a problem. Yeah, I mean, how do you handle one of my favorite novels, one of the great American novels, Adventures of Huckleberry Finn? How can you read that text? It's... it's so what do you do with it? Well, you I think just there are many. Oh, I think many institutions have decided to retire uh, that novel from the curriculum altogether. Uh, I, I'm, that's not. I'm not making that up. Right. I, I know that it's true. Um, uh, I have. I have uh, colleagues, not at Skidmore, but at other institutions, people who write for my magazine, who've said that they're American literature professors. They they won't do uh, Huck Finn um, in their classes any longer. They've had too much trouble. In the room, they say it's not worth it. It's just not worth it um, to teach that book or certain other books like it. Um, so again, you know, I think there's a way to be respectful of and sensitive about um, the feelings of other people without capitulating completely um, to the idea that um, nothing is any more allowable or permissible. I, I don't. I don't think you you need to capitulate, and I don't think you have to be an old man like me uh, to to sort of hold the line uh, when it comes to things. But like you that. also, uh, from a historical perspective. Uh, you talk about how this is very much a slippery slope with authoritarian rules. Yes. Rulers. I mean, I was in Turkey right before Erdogan shut that country down. You know, mm-hmm. I've been to others in Russia last summer where you see, you know, free thought and free press is, is, is not taken for granted and it's not even available. So do you see what's in our current political climate with red state, blue state, these horribly divisive along the same lines and what President Trump is trying to do of kind of declaring himself the the one (laughs) exalted ruler. (laughs) I think he either wants to be Putin, Erdogan, maybe a little Jong-un. I'm not sure who, but is it similar to what's happening in our current political discourse? I I do think the discourse is being uh, policed um, in such a way that calls to mind efforts to create a kind of an orthodoxy and uh, and and therefore a kind of a tyranny. Um, you know, I, I have a whole chapter in my book. It's the shortest chapter in the book, um, devoted to uh, disability studies, um, and it's built around an uh, an incident uh, at my own institution. If you like, I can I, I could quickly yeah, outline yeah, it yeah. because I think it speaks to this mm-hmm. question. You know, um, uh, one day uh, a, a colleague of mine um, came to the office and and said, "Did you?" Did did you see the poster that's posted on the door of every uh, department office in the college? I said, no. We went out and looked at it, and it's a, uh, it was a poster that said, keep Skidmore safe. And, um, uh, and as we read the poster, uh, we, we saw that it was um, 
uh, brought out by a group of people in disability studies in the college. And disability studies is a, an emergent uh, sort of area in the literary profession. Uh, lots of interesting scholarship. I have several uh, colleagues who've done really good work in disability studies. Um, but this poster identifies what it calls ableist language, examples of ableist language, which includes expressions like stand on your own two feet or learn to walk in someone else's shoes. Um, and the poster declares that these are offensive expressions which should not be allowed. Um, and it tells students that they are required, obligated, uh, should a professor use expressions of that kind um, to tell their professors that they're offended and the professors are required to cease um, in using that language. If they should not promise to do so or if they should continue to use that language, the poster tells them how to bring up those professors on charges. Uh, Title IX charges based on creating um, a, an unwanted and, uh, environment. And um, that seemed to me disgraceful. Uh, I protested it. Uh, I wrote to the people in charge who, whose names appeared at the foot of the poster. I wrote the president and the dean of the college. And I said, you, you want to create a hostile environment at our institution? This is how you create a hostile environment. What was the response? They took down the posters. But uh, I will quote the response of the person in charge was very nice, it was very civil, and said, okay, I have to admit, um, this is a bit premature. That's a quote. I have the letter. I have the email. This is a bit premature, meaning we're moving um, progressively right, in the direction which will make these kinds of instructions to students about bringing professors up on charges for using expressions like that legitimate. We're not perhaps quite there yet. It's right, premature, but give us a little while longer and we'll have you all whipped into shape. Is this just uh, administrators buckling to students? I mean, I don't really blame the students. Just in your no. generation, you probably did sit-ins at Queens College and took over the administration. I, I was in a weird period where it wasn't that active, but... I've certainly read about it and, and seen it, and so students are, are grappling for their own power and voice. And so, do you who do you blame there, the students or the professors or the administration that's enabling them? I, I find it hard to I'm not not because I'm a nice guy, but I find it hard to blame my students or or students in general. Um, I, I think they're getting a lot of this nonsense from a lot of their professors. And certainly I blame administrators who are um, supine um, when they get wind of these kinds of things and do nothing uh, to, to stop them. And I've seen a lot of that, um, not just at my own institution, but at institutions all across the country. I mean, we've, we've all of us read uh, stories that have hit the national newspapers and so on about things taking place at 
uh, Oberlin, Middlebury, Northwestern, um, Evergreen State. I mean, schools all across the country where rather dreadful things uh, are taking place and where administrators, for the most part, have not uh, attempted lift, to lift a finger um, to stop them. Um, it's very refreshing every now and then uh, to hear about or learn about a, an administrator who says, no, we will not have this. Um, like the president of the University of Chicago, who said about two years ago, no, we're, we're not going to have this. No, we're not creating a surveillance culture at the University of Chicago. Uh, we're not going to tell people to watch what they say. Uh, we're going to maintain sort of elementary civility. You can't call people disgraceful names, uh, right? You can't intimidate people. But short of that, no. And that, that, that made national news mm -hmm. uh, because that was a very unusual thing. Yeah, some or presidents have resigned over this kind of pressure from students. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about identity politics is another term that comes, again, just describing your childhood. You know, one of your great teachers of all time was black. Uh, you grew up, I'm sure, in Brooklyn at that time was a very, you know, mixed, diverse group. You grew up Jewish, I assume. Did you suffer any anti-Semitism growing up at all? Or? Not at all. Um, I, um, I never suffered any, any personally, but, any problem. But, but you seem to be more of much more a, a, uh, an intellectual of, of all, you know, you don't just identify yourself as a Jewish critic or a no. Jewish writer. What, how, how has your Judaism influenced you? Are you more of a secular or observant? Do you see everything through the prism of, of Jewish identity? Or? Well, no, and that's, of course, that, and that's, that's an issue I, I do, as you know, to take up at considerable length in, in my book. And it bears very heavily upon virtually all of the issues uh, that I take up uh, in the book and issues that are, uh, that, that are on people's minds uh, right now. Um, you know, identity is, you know, it's a, it's a funny thing. I mean, it, of course, identity is real. I mean, we, we, all of us now and again ask ourselves the question, you know, who are we? Uh, who are we? What are we? Uh, where do we come from? How did we get to be what we are? And uh, if I think of myself uh, as, as a Jew, uh, I think of someone who, who had certain experiences um, because he's a Jew, who went to Hebrew school, sang in a choir, uh, was very close to his rabbinical grandfather. I, I mean, of course, I have all those experiences. But obviously, um, that's not who I am. Uh, that's only one tiny fraction of who I am. I mean, I'm working class, my attitudes are still, um, at a, after all these years, rather working class. Um, I'm still invested in, you know, sort of the dream of socialism. Um, I, I can't help it. Uh, that's part of who I am. Um, but I'm also an intellectual. I also happen to be straight. I've also happened to be married to the same person for almost a half a century. All of these things, you know, figure in my identity. So to think of myself principally or solely uh, as a Jew or as a white person um, is impossible for me. And I, uh, you know, in the book, I, I sort of wonder at uh, people who tend to think of themselves in a single way. And of course, I understand that if people are very devout, uh, devout, devoutly Islamic, devoutly Jewish, devoutly Catholic, 
And that is for them the most important thing in their lives and the most important thing about them, then I can respect that and, and I can accept that there will be people like that um, who must be permitted uh, to go through the world thinking of themselves in this way and perhaps also encouraging other people, their own children, for example, to think of themselves in this way. Um, but I think... Um, people who think of themselves as essentially secular and, and containing multitudes, to use that expression, uh, we, we just can't think of ourselves in that way. And, uh, and we, we try at least to think that it's not a good idea in secular institutions, in secular institutions, to encourage our students to think of themselves principally as black people, white people, gay people. I, I, I just think that's a terrible mistake within the framework of a secular institution. Right. Um, so that, as I, I say in my book, um, when I hear people say, and I hear them say it all the time, um, things like, white people can never understand that. I, I, I think, what do you mean white people? Which white people can never understand that? Right. You mean Donald Trump or Bernie Sanders? Right. You mean Bob Boyers or a white nationalist? Which, which white person exactly can never understand that? Right. And of course the same would be true if you began that sentences, sentence with uh, a black person could never understand that. W what do you mean? Which black person? So I, and that's where identity politics, I think, has done terrible things to uh, our discourse in, in this country. So the other thing I'm sure you hear, I hear it regularly on this campus, and I often don't respond, but white privilege, male privilege, I, I guilty as charged on both counts. I can't change that, but yeah, white privilege, male privilege. So immediately you're sort of on a defensive and push back. So how do you respond to those as, as if those are two strikes against you in, in any discussion. I mean, how do you, how do you even respond? Yeah. Well, you know, uh, you know that the privilege call-out, so-called, right, has been deployed um, so frequently um, precisely because it is felt that anyone at whom it is um, directed will have no response. Um, how can you respond to the charge of white privilege, which is based solely on the fact that you happen to be white. That has nothing to do with what particular kind of white person you are, what particular kinds of experiences you have had as a white person, which is not based at all upon any particular thing you've said or written or done. How would you respond to it? You can only say, it's just a noise word. Right. It's completely nonsensical. It's a noise word. Right. Um, you've got, if you're going to talk about white privilege, you have to talk about it like a serious person. So you have to say, is there such a thing as white privilege? Of course there is. Um, anyone who's white knows, right, thinking about uh, a society in which often uh, black people have suffered in various ways because they are black, you have to concede that, of course, there is such a thing as white privilege. It exists, and it has always existed. And so you want to talk about ways 
to even the playing field um, and to alter the way things are done in the society. You want to get serious about this um, and you, you want to think of what you can actually do to affect those uh, those inequalities that actually exist in the society because of one or another form of privilege. I mean, in the same way, you, if, you, if you come from a certain uh, period in the past when um, uh, black people were not permitted to rent an apartment for which they've, they'd applied uh, simply on the grounds that they were black, and that there were real, real estate agents and so on who would keep blacks out of neighborhoods, well, then you know that there was such a thing as white privilege, right? Mm. The privilege of white people who could, who could rent an apartment in that building when a black person couldn't. So, you know, you don't want to sort of dismiss the idea that there was actually such a thing as, as white privilege, but you want to call out the nonsensical uh, intoning of that term uh, as if it actually, in most cases, said something serious, and as if it were not most of the time deployed simply to make people feel uncomfortable and ashamed. Uncomfortable and ashamed, why? Because they're black? Because they're male? I mean, absurd. Right. So you've been at Columbia University. You've got some uh, upcoming events at campuses. What's been the response so far? I've had wonderful responses, um, and I've been very gratified by this. At Columbia University, where I gave a, a, a lecture to a very large audience a couple of weeks ago, I, um, I was very pleased. And uh, there are all sorts Any of people... Any student call-outs and no. calling you no. uh, on privilege or anything? No. There were many, many students there. I mean, I know that there are people out there um, some of whom are actually buying my book and reading it. There have to be people who disapprove of many of the things that, that I've written and, and that I'm going around the country saying. I know that. And that's okay. That's perfectly fine. You know, in fact, one of the things um, that I'm arguing in the book is that disagreement, public disagreement, is at the core of what we mean when we talk about liberalism. Right. I, mean, I think right? this is a problem now that people... Do, do not listen and, and talk and, and, you know, I think social media, but we'll get into it. We actually have to wrap this up to get you down to the event in a minute, but I, I would appreciate if you'd read a bit from the introduction to give our listeners a, a sense of the themes and, and tone of the book, and uh, then we'll get ready to uh, to have your talk with here at the University of Albany. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm just going to read from the front of the book the preface, which, which is really written in a style that's very different from the rest of the book. But I think of the whole book in many ways as a sort of a conversation with myself, with other people, with my own sons, who are actually addressed at different points in the book. And in this case, in the preface to the book, I actually address myself as you. A student at a graduation party tells you she thinks you're woke, and you say, thank you, and you're not sure you know what that means. It's no small thing, she continues, for an old white guy like you. And so you think further about it the next day, try to process the idea, obvious that you can talk the talk, invoke the system and the market, inequality and abuse, neoliberalism and privilege, that you don't offend. After three classes with you, the student probably means mainly that you don't offend. Willing to talk politics when teaching your courses, not averse to assigning books, sure to provoke unrest. And yet, 
no prospect you think that you'll spontaneously utter something that will lead decent people to walk out or turn their backs. Decent people, the kinds who sign up for your classes, attend your lectures, read your articles, and occasionally send you email letters to express their encouragement or disappointment. Even your kids, who are given to noting your deficiencies, assure you that you've written nothing to embarrass them. Not yet, though they are wary of your insistence on coming out with things uncomfortable or contrarian. Your habit of criticism, your tendency to quarrel with people in your own left liberal cohort, the pleasure you take in saying no to things many of your friends embrace, maybe too reluctant to let people know you're with them, pissed off about always needing to show your papers and confirm you're on board, wanting to have it both ways, wanting to be woke and yet disdainful of the rituals and empty posturing that signify your determination never to offend. In truth, if truth be told, not always on board, even with what passes for the higher wisdom in your own herd of independent minds. Your friendly demeanor no longer sufficient to cover over the fact that you're unwilling to sit quietly, hands nicely folded, in the total cultural environment many of your friends and colleagues want to inhabit. Total, in that all are expected to speak with one voice about the right and the true, no misgivings permitted, an environment in which naysayers and dissidents are routinely asked to leave the room. Not always asked, you say, wondering, not for the first time, how you can have avoided that fate yourself. Thank you. The book is The Tyranny of Virtue, Identity, the Academy, and the Hunt for Political Heresies by Robert Boyers, just published by Scribner. You can find it in your local bookstores. You can find it on Amazon, wherever you buy your books. This has been a great pleasure. Thank you so much, Bob. Thanks so much for having me, Paul. And please tune in next time for the Writers Institute podcast. And uh, look for great people that we have coming in here to the University of Albany. Thank you very much, Bob.